We come this morning to our sermon passage, which we were in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, last week. We looked at a song that was sang by the dad of John the Baptist when he was born, Zacharias. Well, this morning we're turning to Luke 1 again, and we're looking at a different song. This time the song that the pregnant mother of Jesus, Mary, sang. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the, kind of the context and what went on before she sang this song and what it can do for us. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Luke chapter 1. You can see it printed in the book. This is God's Word. Good, beautiful. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Just as he promised our ancestors. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this song. This song that Mary sang when she was probably 13, 12 or 13. Pregnant with the Lord Jesus in her womb. This song is drawn out and born in her heart. Thank you that we have it written for us in Luke 1. And that in reflecting on it, we can think on what it means. For Jesus to be in our world, that means for us. Set apart this time, God, to show your Jesus to us, his beauty and his majesty, and cause our hearts to love him all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. For me, Mary is one of the most complex and interesting people in the whole Bible. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Mary just doesn't pop up here at a manger scene. It's actually a very complicated person. There's a complex betrayal, not betrayal, portrayal of who she is. Now, our manger scenes undercut this, I think. We get into the Christmas season. I've got a manger scene in my front yard, and what's there? We've got, uh, we got the manger. We've got the little feeding trough. Jesus is crazy. We've got the little baby Jesus held by the silent teenage Mary, and we've got Joseph. Our manger scenes, I think, undercut the reality of who Mary is. For us, Mary can be just a silent girl, wide-eyed, and innocent, holding a baby. It's like she's forever frozen in this one moment in her life when her son was born. Like she only serves the story as being the doorway that God used to become one of us. But I think in our imagination, it's easy for Mary to just stay in that scene. But if we open our Bibles and we read closely, the Mary we see there is not a wide-eyed, innocent, passive, silent character. Not by any means. The Mary we meet in Scripture is lively. She's complex. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see that a Mary that's very assertive. When something needs to happen, she takes charge. When we walk through the Gospel of Luke, I mean Gospel of John, in chapter 2, when the wedding feast is going on and the wine runs out, Mary's the one takes it on herself to scramble to figure out what to do. And she goes to Jesus in the lodge right now. They don't have it anymore. She's a servant. She sees problems. She jumps in. 
takes charge. We see a married experience cycle. We see that in this song. She shows a very clear understanding of God and His work after being told that she's going to bear the Son of God. She knows what that means. That's why this song spills out. She's thoughtful. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, it speaks of Mary having these experiences when Jesus is a child. And it speaks of her treasuring them in her heart. Like saving them up like treasures to ponder and think on. And in fact, as an aside, when we read the Gospel of Luke and we read these stories about Mary and Jesus when he was a kid, she's the source for this. Gospel of Luke was written by Luke who was a doctor who went around and quite literally interviewed folks. And so his source for this stuff, his source for the words of this song, Mary herself. But she's thoughtful. She, she saved this up. She's also worried. She's worried. We see this when Jesus comes of age, and we see this in the Gospel of Mark especially. When Jesus comes of age, and it's time for his public ministry to begin, and he starts teaching, and he starts to face his very first opposition, Mary doesn't go, go get him, son. Actually, she tries to um, go with Jesus' brothers and his sisters and stop them. She's worried that he's getting in too deep. And that this is not at all looking like she wants it to look for her son. And so it, it talks about her and her family trying to uh, quietly pull Jesus away. She's inconsistent. She doubts. She struggles with her son being the Messiah, her son being the one that's going to bring salvation to the world. In other words, when we look at this full word picture of Mary from Scripture, we don't get the passive Mary of a manger scene that never says a word. We see a life and a complex person, which I, I want to point out because that is good news for us. Because I'm complicated, and sorry, we are complicated people.
So chances are, when we meet Mary in Luke chapter 1, she's a young teenager. And we know from later on in Luke that Mary and Joseph were extremely poor. They were very poor people. So she's a young, poor woman from a small insignificant town engaged to be married to a carpenter. I just described about half the women in Martin County. <laughs> In the eyes of the world, in our eyes even, maybe insignificant. Maybe just another person that we know. Insignificant. And into this pot, into this smallness, this seeming insignificance, God sends to her an angel with an announcement. Now I said this last week in reference to Zechariah, but angels appearing to people, it's not like that happened all the time. It, it, you know, we can sometimes make you think that's happening every other page in the Bible. Angels showing up and tell somebody something. It, it's not. It's very rare. It only happens when God is at work to, to, to bring his plan of redemption to this new, like, huge stage. And so it happens here. And the interesting thing in, in, in Luke 1 when we talk about Zachariah, Zachariah was a priest. He was literally in the temple when the angel appeared to him. And so if there was any place in the world you would expect, maybe a messenger of God to show up. Temple makes sense, right? But not to Nazareth. Not to Spike's corner. Not to a seemingly random person. The angel shows up with an announcement. The angel does not introduce himself. He simply says this. This is the first words Mary hears from him. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. This is, the great, this is like greeting royalty, right? <laughs> you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And in response to that, I didn't read it, I probably should have. Mary responds with one of my very favorite reactions in the entire Bible. Earlier, Zechariah had seen the exact same angel when he said it was, he was absolutely terrified and shaken. Mary, when she hears greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you, it says this. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. A terrifying angel was standing in front of her. It says, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And she is greatly troubled at his words and wondered what is going on. Why? Because she is a young and poor woman from a small town. This is not the kind of greeting she's ever heard in her entire life. There's no one who has referenced her and talked to her in this way. In fact, it, it seems to be that she thinks the angel might have the wrong person. Because the thing that the angel says in response to this is, Do not be afraid, Mary, Mary, you have found favor with God. The angel has to like go the extra mile to make sure Mary understands that he didn't like get his GPS wrong and wind up in Nazareth by accident. Like he was coming to Mary herself. She who is uh, highly favored. And the angel tells her she's going to have a son formed in her by the miraculous power of God, apart from the help of any man. And that this son will not just be a miracle, it will be the son of God. But even in that, Mary is not, even at 12 or 13, she's not passive and resigned to what's going to happen. She doesn't shrug her shoulder. She says this, I am the Lord's servant. May your words to me be fulfilled. And then she goes to see her pregnant, uh, older pregnant cousin, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. And when Elizabeth rejoices with her, that's when Mary breaks out into the song that we read just a moment ago. So let's look at 
at this song a little bit closer. What song has been born in Mary's heart as the baby Jesus grows in her womb? I think this is a fundamental idea that's growing in her. That God's calling to her is not just for His glory, it's for her. I think we can treat Mary in a sense like she was just kind of like a vessel to Jesus. Like we really just need her for Christmas to get Jesus into the world. And then we're good, Mary. Thank you for your service. Go off into your retirement or whatever. If we just need her for that. We can kind of cast her aside. I'm being crass, but sometimes we can treat her like that. The only significant thing about her is that she's for Jesus in her body. After that, it's, it's like God just picked a random person and could have really been anybody. But not Mary. Mary didn't feel that way. When Mary heard the announcement of the angel to her and told her what was going to happen, Mary did not interpret it. Because she knows, and we see it in this song, that whatever God is doing here isn't just something that uses her for His purposes and throws her aside. She has a fundamental conviction here that His glory is her good. And her good is His glory. Same for us. You know, sometimes they, the, the, the idea of us being used by God. Have you ever thought about that verb, God uses us, or we're instruments? I think sometimes we can talk about that and our hearts can take it and interpret it this way. That whatever God wants to do, we're just kind of tools. That God might accomplish what He wants, but He's just going to use us to set us aside. That if not, you know, it's not really ultimately for us. It can't be for us, for our good. That God might use us, but sometimes, and maybe I'm just preaching to myself this morning, I think of it like God using me like He's using an egg in a baking recipe. To get the egg to actually work in the bread, the recipe, you got to break it, you're going to mix it all up, you're not going to be able to know the egg's in there. Just turn it into a cake, right? An idea that God, what God wants to do might mean we get swallowed up in the process. There's a possibility to even try to romanticize that. I remember, I, I hate this quote, I may have mentioned it before, but I heard it a lot in seminary. Pastors will use this quote by a guy named Count Zinzendorf, who you don't need to know, but a German guy from a few hundred years ago. His, his idea of what it meant to be called by God was this preach the gospel, die, and then be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and then be forgotten. Now that would be quoted to me. I've heard it from professors, even seminary professors, and other pastors as this romantic idea that God's calling us to the field, to be on mission for Him, the kingdom of God, and we're going to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. It's this romanticizing idea that God's just going to use us up for His purposes and cast us aside. And I'm sorry, as romantic as we might want to make that sound, I think that has more to do with like that is a brave heart. You know, William Wallace, free dog, than anything Jesus calls us to. You know, some of us have a lot of church experiences. If you've had a lot of church experiences, sadly, that usually means you've been burned or burned out by church before. It's true of me. And church culture and the idea of being on mission for Jesus, it can burn people out. But that's not Jesus. Politicians may use people for their purposes. Pastors may mistreat and use people to build platforms and fill pocketbooks. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not what God does. 
Yes, God has a mission for us. Yes, God calls us to be empowered by Him and He uses us to grow His kingdom. But the thing that permeates every bit of this, the thing that serves as the air we breathe in the midst of being on mission for God is His love for us. We do not serve a God that uses us for His purposes and casts us aside. It's not who He is. We are never mere servants with a task to accomplish. We are children of a loving Father that invites us to go with Him to learn the family trade in sense. He doesn't command us and send us off. He's not our boss paying us a wage. He goes with us. He guides us. He gives us an inheritance and a home with him. That's why the New Testament uses that language over and over again. It doesn't picture God as our boss paying us a paycheck. It's a father giving us an inheritance. God is not our boss. We are not just his servants. He is our father. We are his children. For Mary, that meant that she's not just a body that God used to bring Jesus into this world. I think that's why she sang the way she did. Her soul glorifies the Lord, as she says. Her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. Not because she's being used up by him, but because she says here, quote, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Now she uses that word servant, right? And the Greek word behind that, I don't want to be in the Greek word guy, but the Greek word behind that is, is the word we get doula from. You know, folks that are trained to walk alongside families that are having children. They help prepare. They don't just do the medical stuff. They walk alongside the mothers and the families to prepare them. Mary doesn't have the conception of herself as a slave of God. What has captured her heart here is that God has looked on her. He has seen Mary. Not just random girl. He has seen Mary. And he has set his affections on Mary. He has been mindful of Mary, of her. And I can just imagine, because Luke wrote his gospel decades after the time of Jesus. And so Mary would have been telling Luke about this song as an elderly woman. And even then, she did not have a concept that God used up my family, God used up my body to accomplish his purposes. No. She said, my soul is My spirit rejoices to God and Savior. Because he has been mindful of me. He has seen and known and loved Mary, me. Now I've lost my place. Just a second. <laughs> What's captured her heart is God has looked and seen her. In a world where nobody else really would have, where she was seen as insignificant, in a world where she is a woman would have absolutely no property or legal rights, she couldn't even call to be the person give testimony in court. She had no rights in her own body. She, in, in the Roman world at the time, you could not even as a woman decide what you wanted to wear. That was legislation. In a world full of people living their lives to build up their kingdom, she is convinced that God has seen her and is lifting her up. And that's why she says here that all generations will call her blessed. The root of that word blessed means happy. And I don't mean like Joel Osteen, God wants to give you a Maserati and make you happy. But I mean this concept of blessed, when we say we are blessed by God, it means that we are recognizing the sovereign Lord of the universe has a vested interest in my joy. 
Sovereign Lord has a vested interest in my happiness. And that's what Mary is saying to me. Mary. Mary from Nazareth. Mary from Spider's Corner is blessed by God. But this isn't just a designation or a blessedness for her. As we see in verse 50, look what she says. Her being blessed and having this conviction of God seeing her turns her eye to her brothers. His mercy extends to those who fear him. Now, fear, the idea of fear of God can be a tricky one. Because fear does not have any positive connotation for us in, in our world. But when the Bible uses the idea of fear of God, it doesn't mean terror. The idea is not that we cower for bedding him up with squashes, or that he looks on down on us like we look at hands. The idea of the fear of God is an idea of reverence and, and bafflement. That we see in God, when he shows himself to us, we see something we cannot put in a box, we cannot get our mind around, and it calls out from within us a reverence, a recognition that standing in front of me is something I cannot uh, comprehend in this form. It's the human response of coming into contact and relationship with someone so far beyond our understanding. It's kind of like if you've ever been, I don't know if anybody's been to the Grand Canyon, but you've been on top of a mountain, and you see this view, this great vista. There's so many complicated emotions that come up when we see true beauty like that. And I think mixed in there is what the Bible is talking about, that we stare at something we cannot get our mind around. And our hearts are so captured by this thing and its bigness. And it's grandeur. But fear of God is more than awe in the face of something or someone we can't get our minds around. This experience of awe, this recognition of awe in the face of God and the bathroom and who He is, Mary sings. So it's not a fear that silences her, it's a fear of God. It's this reverence, this, this awe that calls out a song from within her. Mary sings as one who is standing in awe of God's mercy, in part because the fear of God is something that chases away every other fear. And so that's, I think the fear of God, the Bible speaks of it, it's, it's rooting us in this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Fear of God is a fear that reverence that all chases out every other fear. All of God destroys our all of terror. I don't have to stand in the face of despair and be shaken at my core because my God is greater than that despair. So fear of God is not dread. It's a joyful awe that recognizes His power, a power that stretches far beyond any power of this world, a power that is joined to His grace and wisdom. And that's why I think Mary goes where she goes in the song next. Because starting at verse 51, she begins to sing about the birth of her son, the birth of the son who brings mercy to those who fear God, means for those who don't fear God. In modern terms, there are scores of people who would look at the language of Mary in verses 51 through 55 and accuse her of being a woman, or accuse her of being a social justice warrior, or whatever. In fact, it's not uncommon with Mary's song for people to leave off the second half altogether. In fact, I was part of a church a few years ago, and we sang a musical rendition of Mary's song, but it stopped at verse 50. 
Because there was just some discomfort in singing the rest of the verses, I think. But Mary knew the score. That's what I want to point out. Mary knew the score. She knew that Jesus' birth was not just a saccharine or a sanguine hope for abstract peace on earth, but it was an eviction notice for the false power of this world. That the squatters of our Father's world who pretend like their strength or their economy or their arms or their possessions establish them will find in Jesus, find in this child, a rejection of their violence, their oppression, and their pride. So look how she says it in verse 51. Let's read it again. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Let me point out that when she sings, he has performed mighty deeds. Jesus is the fetus of her woman. But she sees in this child, God, at work, performing mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent away the rich empty. He has helped his servant Israel, and remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The arrival of Jesus is the scattering of pride. It's the unseating of what we think power is. Every false power that has lifted itself on the backs of others, every false ruler that wields violence and uses people, the birth of this son, the bringing of God's kingdom into this world, is the putting of false power on notice. Mary is singing essentially what Jesus will say later. All who live by the sword will die by the sword. The gains of the power of this world, political power, can only ever be temporary. Can never be ultimate. Because God is it. Now, if we keep reading in Luke, we'll see that this looks a lot different than what we might think here. And if we were just reading the, the words of Mary without any context. And honestly, I think it looked a little bit different than maybe Mary thought when she was singing this song. Or at least her song here was one that she struggled with. The confident declarations that she makes here as a pregnant woman later on in her life give way to doubts and fear when she starts to see her son face opposition. And I bet she wondered, because she was present, one of the only people present at the crucifixion of Jesus. She was standing at the foot of his cross. I bet she wondered, how in the world is this the fulfillment of what I said when he was a baby? But it was there, at that cross, that Jesus experienced the combined powers of political rulers and religious rulers drunk on their own supposed power. It was there at the cross that Jesus faced the false justice of this world. It was there that he voluntarily took on and experienced the wrath of God against the sin of this world. And it was right there, in that moment that looked like ultimate defeat, this moment when the peasant's son was put in his place, it was right there where God unseated the false justice of this world, where he broke its power. How? Not only in the sense that Jesus is an atonement for sin, but in this, that Jesus is the righteous one who was killed by the unrighteous, only then to be the righteous one who was resurrected from the dead. The New Testament, the, the preachers in the book of Acts, the very first sermons that are going out, it speaks about this constant. That Jesus was put to, to death by the power of this world, God vindicated him. And when he was raised from the dead, he was seated on high above every ruler and every throne. The scripture says he was vindicated in his resurrection. That the 
raised to quote the Apostle Paul for our justification. Meaning this, in a world full of false claims of significance, false ideas about what is insignificant, Jesus judges the old creation with all its flaws, with all its violence, to bring a new order to life. A new creation, not defined by the false ideas of this world. A new creation defined by the creative power and love of God. A new creation where a peasant woman is not written off because she's poor, or because she's a woman, or because she's from a small town, but the place where she is the and She's the one who's called us. Now what can all this mean for us as we're closing our thoughts on this song? As I mentioned earlier, if we keep reading in the Gospels, we don't see a Mary who got it all right here. It wasn't like a flip, uh, a switch flip, and then she was good for the rest of her life. We don't see a sinless, we don't see a sinless Mary. That's, that's a creation of later on. What we see is someone who didn't stay on a straight and steady path, path of never doubting and never struggling with who her son is. Like I said earlier, she's a complex character, not one-dimensional, complicated like us. So take encouragement here. God used this seemingly insignificant, complicated, inconsistent woman to bear Jesus into this world, to literally be the bearer of the Son of God into her world. And Mary was the first complicated person to bear Jesus, but not the last. For as I said earlier, we're not literally pregnant with a baby Jesus in our womb, but we do bear him in this world. The New Testament talks about Jesus sending his Holy Spirit to us, and that we are empowered, and God dwells within us by the power of the Spirit, and is drawing out from within us his grace. He uses these terms. This is the imagery of pregnancy. We are pregnant with the possibilities of God's grace. Or better yet, we are pregnant with the presence of God who brings his mercy to the humble. And that's growing with us, to be born into our world. So my prayer for us is that God would form in us the same heart as Mary. That we would have the faith to look at the, his troubling grace and say, I'm your servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. To receive his grace in all its oddness and all its faithfulness. To bear, uh, that God will work in us the same faith to bear Christ within us. The hope of glory that Paul talked about in Colossians 1. That I would never see uh, myself as someone who is stupid and insignificant to be cast off. But I would see myself as someone that God has chosen to join himself to. That I would store up the treasures of Jesus in my heart and contemplate them, to marvel his grace again and again. That I would have the same faith to know that the coming of Jesus is not my optic good news of your best life now, or just like a pie in the sky hope of some time later. But it's the coming of the kingdom of God. The domain work of the eternal joy that belongs to Father, Son, and Spirit becomes our joy. Where we are swept up into His joy. Good news to the poor, to the hungry, she said. And notice the conviction to the oppressive, the powerful, hungry, and the rich. That we would have the same faith to know this is true even when we don't see it in full. 